It's late on a Friday night in Chicago, and the Waldorf room high atop the Coot Street Motel 6 is closed. The piano bar is, is shut, so it's time for a glass of wine and a quiet chat with me and Gary on the Coot Street Podcast. Hi, Gary. Hi. I'm, I'm really sorry about the Motel 6 thing, but, you know, <laughs> the last time we had the post-Coot Street party, they just had to shut down early. You know how it goes. How is life uh, treating you, old son? I'm having um, uh, the kind of things that happen in summer, especially when you have – I hate to point this out every once in a while – grandkids old enough to graduate from high school. Um, so I came back from an American high school graduation. How it's the sort of thing that you wanted um, – you know, you, you, you want people like uh, – oh, I don't know. You you, you want Kat Valenti and, and, and Kelly Link there so they can write <laughs> stories about it later on. Uh, with the superintendent of schools – Trying to sound relevant to the young kids and saying we during the, during the time that you were in school, uh, we have lost major figures in our lives. Steve Jobs, he said, and Michael Jackson, he said, and Tina Turner, he said, <laughs> and and some of us looked at each other and said, did that happen today? <laughs> no, no, he was confusing her with <laughs> oh Whitney Houston or Donna Summer or something. And the point is. It occurred to me afterwards, none of these names, with the possible exception of Steve Jobs and Michael Jackson, mean anything to 18-year-olds today. I they have no idea who Tina Turner is. No. No, not really. Uh, I mean, it, that may cycle through and there'll be a few who do, but no, I think that the observation is basically correct. Well, we were talking about this a little bit before the podcast. The same thing's true with, you know, with your parents' science fiction, which is now our science fiction. <laughs> I mean, you know... You, You've got kids, I've got grandkids, and the kind of stuff that we think is, you know, is contemporary science fiction is stuff they don't know about. Sure, I mean, I mean, think about it. Uh, Skylarker Space, that was, what, 1915? I think that was, yeah, about, uh, it wasn't published then, it was written about then. Okay, so it's 50 years roughly before I was born. Mm-hmm. So my daughter was born in 2010, 20, uh, so 2001, uh-huh. so 1951. Anything from the mid-1950s on is like Skylark of Space to her. And really for, for someone to, you know, born round about now or enter, entering the field at 13 now, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's impossible. I mean, Skylark's imp- impossibly old, and we're getting to the point where, you know, the cutting-edge work of Harlan, you know, A Dangerous Visions is going to be impossibly old. Well, the question is, does it seem impossibly old? I mean, you have to make a distinction between the Skylark of Space, which is very, very old-fashioned. Or a, a better example, since we just had the centennial, is uh, you know, the Princess of Mars. Yeah. Um, and I've talked to young people who really like that. I mean, some, uh, there are obviously lots of kids coming out of the movie saying, you mean there was a book. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a certain primitive level of adventure story writing that probably still works. I suspect... That a smart young person today coming across Treasure Island or Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde might get it, um, yeah. But but maybe, maybe not a badly written, badly structured story like the Skylark of Space. I don't know if Harlan Ellison's groundbreaking stuff will hold up. I don't know if the stuff that seemed radically groundbreaking in the early fifties, like uh, Alfred Bester, uh, will hold up. Uh, but when I've taught classes of younger people. There are some stories that just strike them as being very new. Um, um, let me think. The, the Cordwainer Smith stories. Mm-hmm. The um, the Bester story. Um, oh, Fondly Fahrenheit. Fondly, Fondly Fahrenheit strikes people as being really 
jazzy and, and innovative and so forth. Uh, but a lot of the classic Heinlein stories seem very old-fashioned, not as old-fashioned as the Asimov stories do. I think some of it is uh, comes down to... You know, does it does something stand genuinely outside of time, even when you you know you first read it? I mean, Cordwain Smith is 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 a a break from anything that came before him in many ways. Mm-hmm. So he he seems out of time, and also you know a lot of things which particularly in the science fiction field seems dated, seem to appear dated for technological reasons, as much as anything, because there's that whole mm-hmm. era of technology-based fiction, and so you know in this era of you know, social networking that we live in. Anything that doesn't have social networking in the background of it seems impossibly old-fashioned. I mean, I remember last year, my uh, Marianne and I rewatched The Breakfast Club. Yeah, mm-hmm. remember the movie, John Hughes movie? John Hughes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And it's you know, it's, it's Saturday morning, bunch of kids sent off to detention, and they sit there and they are, are just isolated. The, the four or five of them, only able to talk to each other, interact with one another. In 2012. They would have been tweeting, they would have had iPhones, they would have had this or that, mm-hmm. that. And even if it was detention and they weren't supposed to, they would have found a way to do it, just as a matter of course. That makes the film seem really dated. Um, and I think if you showed it to a 14-year-old now, they'd be going, why aren't they doing some of that? Right. So, well, I mean, they, a 14-year-old now might view it as an historical film in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, another game, I, another movie I watched from about the same era, which is closer to the science fiction field was, was war games. I, you know, the, I just, I just figured out how I made that association. Ali Sheedy was in both of them. Okay. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And she was really cute back then. Uh, and war games is, is one of these, it, it's a late, it's really a sort of post cold war, cold war movie yep. about computers out of control, starting world war three and only a bright. Now the basic plot is technology out of control and only a bright teenager can figure out how to solve it. Um, but the, Computer technology in that is so bizarrely uh, antiquated that I think kids today would think, uh, you know, we, 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 we can shut down the program with a virus, we can do this, we can set up firewalls. Why aren't they doing any of this stuff? Um, there was, I was rereading um, recently, I didn't reread the whole thing, but I went back and looked at a novel which I thought was terrifically innovative. Oh, I don't know, 25 or 30 years ago, Ari Ma- Roberta McAvoy's. Tea with the Black Dragon, mm-hmm. which is a fantasy novel uh, about a you know, mysterious older uh, Chinese gentleman who may be a mythological dragon. But the, the, the surface story, the contemporary story, has a lot of just what was then cutting-edge computer technology in it. Yeah. And it's all, it's all CPM-based computers. It's all stuff that today is kids wouldn't even understand it. Um, they wouldn't understand, uh, and, and so that's an odd thing when you try to be con- cutting edge with that sort of thing. You're basically taking a chance on your book being out of date within months of its publication. Very much. I mean, and I, we can, I think we can all think of one or two science fiction books in the past where that's exactly been their fate. You know, they've they've come out, they've been cutting edge. I mean, absolutely terrifyingly mm. bleeding edge for a week and a half, and then you can't imagine bothering reading them anymore because they're just yeah. out of date. Um, I mean, some of it can happen if they're... If the essence of what they're doing has been revealed before by the author. I mean, the example I'm, I keep thinking of with this sort of stuff is Accelerando, mm-hmm. uh, the Charlie Strauss book, which seemed impossibly cutting-edge when the stories were coming out. Mm-hmm. But by the time the book came out, seemed 
almost a bit passe, not bad, but just kind of like, and now seems dreadfully old-fashioned. I mean, I don't know if I went and actually re-read it, I'd feel differently, but the whole approach to it just seems so 2000. Yeah, and the the whole notion of Accelerando, which had been around before Strauss started collecting stories, was... Uh, it was a new idea. It was an important new idea, and the whole the whole idea of singularity fiction was you could make an argument uh, that that was the the major idea that science fiction played with after cyberspace. Yes. Uh, and he kind of by the time the book came out, it was kind of this is an almost definitive statement of that, but it's not. If you can make a definitive statement of something, that's almost a way of saying it's not new anymore. Yes. And I think the other, exa- the other example that comes to my mind, and my guess is that Corey was completely aware of this, was Little Brother. Little Brother was right on the edge of things. It was hip. It was the kind of thing that absolutely did recognize what kids were doing in high school uh, at that time, smart, you know, geeky computer kids. But at the same time, I'm sure Corey was completely aware that, uh, that most of the technology he talked about in that would either be realized or not, and within a couple of years... Uh, it wouldn't seem like it's uh, that cutting edge of story anymore. And, and in some ways, I think Little Bro- Brother seems like a very recent period piece. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I don't I don't disagree with you. A book which I felt was very cutting edge at the time, and then I thought might have lapsed into that sort of space, but but which I think has proven just simply to be incredibly prescient, was uh, Sterling's Islands in the Net. Mm-hmm. Along with the other companion, you know, the similar stories like Green Days and Brunei. I mean, I reread Green, Green Days and Brunei a year or so ago, and was struck by, yeah, you know, what a precursor it is to something like uh, Paolo Bacigalupi's work. The thing that fascinated me and still fascinates fascinates me about about Sterling when he's at his best is that um, he thinks about systems rather than individual technologies and innovations. Mm. Uh, and he was, and this goes back to the um, Shaper Mechanist stories. Where he was just talking about the, the, these are these are the opposing kinds of systems that are at work right now, yeah. and that's never gone away. That that basic systematic, uh, systemic analysis that he does in his fiction, which he started doing um, at the same time, uh, Gibson was doing the cool stuff. Gibson mm-hmm. was doing this is what you know this is what it feels like to be in cyberspace. He was very very good at getting the visceral on the street feeling of it, and. I always thought that Sterling was more the coolly analytic futurist, which is really what he is now, thinking, well, these technologies fit into these patterns, and these patterns are going to last even as the technologies change. Yes. Um, and Islands in the Net, how long ago was that? Because Late 80s, what, I think. I was going to say, it's 25 years at least. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and, and you're right, it seems that even the title of it seemed prescient at the time. Yes, and, and doesn't feel... Uh, out of date. Well, I, I think it, you know tie, he was already tying in with everything that was being said about um, climate change, mm-hmm. uh, and then was also tied it in, well extrapolated that out to uh, you know, t- technology, similar uh, feelings about it, w- wanting to be pushed out. Yeah, so the book's 1988, so it's nearly 25 years okay. old. Um, and I, in fact, I would argue, although I, I'm not sure how widely read it is today, I don't have an immediately immediate feeling for it. That it is probably more read now than the Wind Up Girl will be in 25 years. Hmm. I, I, I have no basis on which to agree or disagree, but I want to know why you think that because the Wind Up Girl does deal with new technologies, but it also deals with sort of broad international political systems in a way that's interesting. You know, I, I guess I feel that 
the wind up girl felt like one of those books that was so tied up in the zeitgeist in its moment mm. that it's already peaked and is in a trough it's already yesterday's book i mean paolo is not i should stress yesterday's writer and i think you can see just how much that's true in the two books he's done for little brown mm. but i think on, instead of being a, a game-changing kind of a book, which I think it was maybe initially perceived as, it's proven to be something that just popped up and then dropped down again. Uh, it's, it's Well, it, it may be a one-off in that sense. I mean, he's gone on to oh. other things. I think one of the things it did uh, was to establish a kind of, uh, I hate to use the word paradigm, I hate to go back to Thomas Kuhn's and paradigm shifts and that sort of thing. But, we, we, you know, we've talked before about Neuromancer. Now we're talking about Sterling and the idea of looking at systems and not individual technologies. And there's been a there's been a lot of sort of tentative probing around about a post-oil world. Um, and I, I, I would I would tend to agree with you about early stories like the Calorie Man, for example. Mm -hmm. Because the Calorie Man was like, okay, this is a definitive statement of what you will have to do to survive in a post-oil world. And it was very clever and the, the and working agribusiness into it and working wind-up technology into it uh, was very inventive. Um, and, and he kind of expanded that idea in the next couple of stories and ended up with a wind-up girl, which is his expression of that particular world and that particular technology. Yeah. But by now, I think you're right. I think the post-oil uh, world is one of the default positions of science fiction. Yes. yes so it's no longer innovative to say we're going to run out of oil. No. Uh, it, it, if, you to, if you get to his second of his uh, young adult novels, Drowned Cities, which is a brutal, powerful book, but most of the ecological message, most of the worrying about global warming and the, the, the inundation of coastal cities and the fact we no longer have oil, that's almost like ancient history in this novel. Okay. Interesting. I mean, I do have it sitting around to read, uh, and I, I, I mean to get to it. I wonder if what happens, I mean, what, what Paolo's been doing is he's been bringing that stuff to the front of stories, a lot of post-apocalyptic stories seem to use the, the, you know, the apocalypse or the post-apocalypse period mm. simply as a backdrop or a setting, not fundamentally affecting the story itself, if you know what I mean. They're not about that. And no, they're, they're not. And to some extent, the apocalypse is – I mean, I've got – I don't – I haven't started looking at it. I've got um, an arc for uh, you know, Dadlow and Windling's anthology after. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, – I'm very curious to see how people deal with the idea of apocalypse because one of the things that I've always said, um, I'm sounding like a crusty old guy. <laughs> in 1937, in the Saturday Evening Post, I said, um, but it, it, an apocalypse is an excuse for a frontier story, I yeah. think. Yeah. Uh, science fiction stories, you, you can't just have people take a rocket to Mars and start a new society. Nobody's going to buy that anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's you know that, that that was that was the 40s and 50s. Go back to the 1870s and 1880s. You could find hidden civilizations in the center of Africa. You could see you had so there were all kinds of frontier experiences. But pretty soon you couldn't use Africa. You couldn't use Skull Island for King Kong. Yeah. Uh, couldn't have utopias in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. You couldn't go into the interior of the Earth. Nobody was buying that. So uh, space travel became the only thing. And then space travel didn't work out too well. Because nobody really believes we can get so the only real chance you had to generate another frontier environment was to wipe everything out. Mm -hmm. And there is a interesting study, and I, I've not I, I've not checked 
the actual figures that this guy came up with, but there was a, a one of the more interesting scholars ever about science fiction was a historian named Warren Wager. Mm-hmm. The last few years of his life became a science fiction writer, sold several stories to FNSF, and he wrote a book called Terminal Visions, which was about apocalyptic, uh, post-apocalyptic uh, scenarios. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he found was that these had always been around. They'd been around since Mary Shelley's The Last Man, M.P. Shields' The Purple Cloud, um, Alfred Noyes, just all kinds of novels. And he, I don't know his exact figures, but he's, he said that the majority of these apocalypses were natural apocalypses, floods, uh, comets striking the earth, mm-hmm. uh, earthquakes, whatever it is, until World War One, And after oh. World War One. They became man-made apocalypses. They became endless war. They became things like uh, Wells's Things to Come. Uh, they became uh, mostly nuclear war scenarios, and those eventually moved into uh, ecological disasters created by humanity um, that just became more and more and more bleak. Um, but the idea of, uh, of of the apocalypse became something that we're going to cause, and for what? 40 years, maybe. Well, not that long. Let's say from the early 40s to what? The end of the 60s. Nuclear war was was it. Yes. I mean, you, you, so you, you didn't worry about um, having to have an apocalypse. You just blow everything up and start over again. And now, uh, then, yeah. Uh, there were a few things like plague. I mean, sure. one of the classics was George Stewart's Earth Abides, which was plague. And the plague stories had never gone away. I mean, look at Stephen King's The Stand. Sure. But by and large, uh, and but by and large, people come up with more and more mechanisms. And the point I'm, ma- I'm trying to get to, if there is one, which there may not be, uh, <laughs> is that the apocalypses were simply there as a narrative device. You didn't worry about it. You know, you didn't worry about the politics. I mean, most of the nuclear war novels were not warnings about bad political decisions or about. Uh, Cold War uh, diplomacy. They were just, let's have a war so we can wipe everybody out and start over again. <laughs> and a- now I think with the issues of, of, of global warming and the ozone layer and the possibility of uh, you know more and more catastrophic things that we're creating, uh, I think more and more people are thinking, well, you can't just use an apocalypse for a frontier anymore. You've got to, your message has to include the, po- the apocalypse, the cause of it. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. The last, what was the last major big thing hitting the Earth story? Was it something like Lucifer's Hammer? There must be one later than that. I'm pretty sure. Didn't John Barnes write one? I thought he did. Oh, yes, and he also, but but you see, Mother of well, I mean, Mother of Storms is not the one I'm thinking of. No, but Mother of Storms is one of the apocalypses where you're thinking, well, it is related to global warming in a way. Mm-hmm. But the, my point is. I think the accidental apocalypse, the uh, comet striking the Earth kind of thing. Uh, Arthur, actually, Arthur Clarke wrote, wrote one after that, too. Um, are, or, or the kinds of things that – here's a good example. I, mm. I thought it was a good novel. It was Walter John Williams' uh, The Rift. Yes. Mother of all earthquakes. And it was uh, very well worked out. It turned out not to be the novel you thought it was going to be because it turned out to be – a novel that dealt a lot with racism and, uh, and, and, and intolerance and, and sort of, you know, community behaviors, close, people closing in on themselves. Um, it did not do well. It did not do what it was supposed to do for Walter John's reputation, uh, which was to make a mainstream novel. And I think one of the things that happened was 
you know, in the end, for all the good novelistic things he had happening in the afternoon, it was just a big earthquake. Yeah. And we've seen big earthquakes before. How often do you think apocalyptic stories, well, apocalypses in science fiction really aren't much more than killing off the parents in a YA book? There's a way, there's a part of that. I mean, there, there's a part of that where, you know, we are going to wipe the slate clean and start up, start up again. And, and in American apocalypses, at least, there's even a kind of return to the mythology of the frontier where, you know, the natural aristocracy yeah. uh, will arise. I, I, I did an essay once where I was saying that you know, one of the origins of apocalyptic American fiction is James Fenimore Cooper with uh, the Deerslayer. You know, the, the idea behind a lot of Cooper's fiction was that in America, in the wilderness, uh, the class system that we inherited from England goes out the window and those who are most competent become survivors. They become the leaders. It's not a, it's not a big leap from that to Heinlein. No. Competence is you know, the new elite. And since science fiction readers love to think of themselves as competent, uh, or at least ingenious, then of course that's, that's our chance. You know, it's, and in, in a way it is getting rid of the parents. I wonder if that's part of what's going on with the Hunger Games which is probably, what, the most successful apocalyptic fiction of the last 40 years, maybe. Probably. In pure, in, purely in terms of reaching number of readers, yeah, I think that's probably the case. Mm. Um, and it was interesting that it resonated the way it did. Uh, and in fact, it's probably one of those rare instances of, well, no, it's not. I was going to say it was a rare instance of combining, in fact, getting rid of the parents and apocalypses. But then I, I realized one of the one of the early apocalyptic books that I remember, at least in terms of age, was The Wild Shore by Stan Robinson, which it has, mm. although it's very different from Hunger Games, has that similar thing. Younger characters, slate wiped clean, nice adventure background mm. laid on, whether it's a particularly hostile or unpleasant one. I mean, it's not primarily about the apocalypse per se at all. No, but there is a sense about, in, in, in that novel as well, that a new generation deserves a chance. Yep. Um, and, and I think that there's... Uh, there is a common thread in a lot of these things, um, uh, e even non-apocalyptic fiction. There's a common thread in a lot of young adult fantastic fiction of all kinds, especially science fiction. Yeah. That adults got us into this mess, and it's not our fault. Our, you know, we have to get out of it. I mean, the and this can be done either very um, thoughtfully, as I tend to think it is in the Hunger Games, or it can be done very manipulatively, as I tend to think it is in, let's say, Ender's Game. Mm -hmm. But Ender's Game is a, among other things, a novel that says your parents are to blame for everything, and you're not. Yes. And if you commit genocide, it's not your fault. See, I'm I'm a little bit interested in your experience with Ender's Game because you did something that I didn't. I admit you were forced to, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I won't apologize for that. But you kept reading them. I mean, like I read Ender's Game, and I read. Uh, the sequel, um, mm. Speaker for the Dead, when they came out. So I read Ender's Game in 84, maybe, and Speaker for the Dead in 85. I think, you know, they came out back to back. Right. And I have not reread them, and I have not read any of the follow ons. Well, uh, I'm not sure whether you were necessarily reviews editor at Locus when I started getting these things in the mail. No. Charles, no. You, you better take care of this. Um, I remember, okay, here's one of the interesting things, and in that. My science fiction reading life falls into two or three parts, but the biggest division is before and after I was reviewing for Locus. Ender's Game is a novel when I was picking up whatever looked interesting to me, and I read it on my own, probably 84, right? And I started mm -hmm. reviewing for Locus, I think, in 92. So I had read that, 
and I was impressed by it. And then uh, I reread it years later when I had to review one of the sequels. And I didn't pick up until the second time around that this is kind of disturbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the sequels, and I thought, well, maybe I'm misreading that. But then each sequel made me more convinced, no, I wasn't misreading it. All the creepy stuff in that novel was way creepier than I thought it was. And the sequels moved more and more in that direction of um, a kind of almost a, a I, I, I don't want to say, well, yeah, it was creating a kind of super race. That's what these young, brilliant people were doing. And, mm. and contempt for a, for the for a huge chunk of humanity became, I think, manifest in the later novels. And I find them very disturbing. And the last one, in fact, I did get uh, to review, and I I can't read them anymore, to be yeah. honest. I mean, there's there's a point at which they move beyond, and th- th- there's absolutely no doubt that Card is a brilliant storyteller and adventure writer and knows how to write hooks and knows how to make you sympathetic with the characters, but that can be used in a very manipulative way. And John Kessel wrote a very persuasive and brilliant analysis of Ender's Game in terms of the rhetoric of that fiction which shows you how it works and also shows how it cheats in a lot of science fictional ways. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, that was, uh, that was something that bothered me, but, it, but, but, you know, card gets a lot of flack for having done something that a lot of other writers were doing in various ways at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm interested that this one now 35 year old series has been so incredibly influential and popular. Influential, I don't know. Popular, yes. Have there been a lot of people writing Ender's Game kinds of fiction? I'm not counting Cory Doctorow's writing Ender's Game. Has, has it really had that much effect on science fiction? That, actually, that's an interesting question because arguably its influence is outside the field, which is an odd thing. I mean, it's taught in high schools. Mm-hmm. And if you're teaching a generation of Americans Ender's Game, that makes it an influential book. Oh, there's no doubt it's, it's an influential book. And there's... I don't know what the figures are, but it's certainly over the last quarter century has to be one of the best-selling, if not the best-selling, of all you know contemporary science fiction books. Well, I certainly remember a few years ago when I was talking to somebody who had access to book scan figures in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were saying at that point, Ender's Game, and this wouldn't have been more than three years ago, was still the number one selling science fiction book in North America. It could very well have been. I've heard that uh, not too long ago also. Um, so you're right. It, 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 it's, it's sold enormously outside the field. It's had a lot of impact outside the field, I think. But being read a lot and having an impact, that's, that's hard to trace. When you talk about taking a science fiction book out of the science fiction readership, out of the community that you and I know something about, yeah. I don't know if you can make any guesses to what its influence is. I would guess that in terms of a high school teaching, uh, before English Game, probably the best-selling book was Flowers for Algernon. Yeah. And... Uh, I've always liked the story better than the novel, but the novel's fine. And it's a very humanistic novel. It's a very heartbreaking novel. Um, I'm glad that Daniel Keyes has made a living off of it and it's been taught in so many high schools. Whether it's had any impact on all the students who've read it, I don't know. Wasn't Ender's Game in the David Pringle top 100 science fiction novels of all time book? No, but I can tell you why it wasn't, mm-hmm. uh, because there's uh, next month, no, later this month, actually, we're doing this on June 1st, but later in June, there's a book by Damon Broder- Damon, Damian Broderick and Paul DiCalippo called The 101 Best Science Fiction Novels Since 1985, yep. 
And the very second novel listed is Ender's Game. <laughs> and what have you read this book, Gary? Well, this sounds so disingenuous. No. Have you read it's, this book, Gary? <laughs> well, you know, I will read the book. I, to be honest, I love books like this. I love uh, David Pringle's Ultimate Guide to Science Fiction. And, and, and part of the reason I like I, I go back to these books uh, is that they're they're just reminders of plots. I mean, they're, they're largely capsule descriptions uh, of the books themselves, which frequently you, know, you frequently don't get in that the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, which takes a broader perspective. So these reference books that just go title by title and say this is why it's an important book uh, fascinate me, even when I disagree with them. So the answer to your question is no, I've not read the book. Yes, I've read the table of contents of the book. And that's all I need to make arguments and criticisms. And that's all anybody else will need either. So, so tell me, Gary, have they got it right? Do they have the right top 100 books or 101 books? I have no idea. I mean, I'm guessing what they did, they ended up with 101 books, and uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing that what Broderick and Filippo did was they sat down year by year and picked out the best books of that year, or the most important books of that year. But best novels, no. I would never agree with any list of best novels because there are too many different kinds of ways of measuring a novel as best. Um, so I'm, I, I tend to be generous. I'm reading this as what they believe to be the 100 most important novels or most influential or... Mm -hmm. worthwhile novels, and there's some odd stuff in it. Um, for example, let's take 1985 alone. That's the beginning sure. year because that is the year after the Pringle book cut off. And their selections are Ender's Game, The Handmaid's Tale, Radio Free Albemuth, and Always Coming Home. Uh-huh. And, oh, excuse me, and uh, no, oh, there's more for 1985. This is the way the world ends, and Galapagos. That's interesting. First of all, I mean, they've got, what, 85 to 2010 or something. So they've got 35 years to, to, to pick from. Right. And they're picking that many from the one year. And, and I'm surprised that at least two of those, I have to say. I'd be, I mean, like, I'm surprised at Radio Free Albemuth. I mean, maybe I've got a blind spot for later Dick, later Philip K. Dick, but I'm not really sure why that would be picked out. I'm yeah. interested in their choice of always coming home because it's such an experimental you know, experimental kind of a book. Though personally, I could never read it. And I'm mm -hmm. delighted that they have This is the Way the World's End there, which is a book which is one of my favorite no novels. Well, I think that uh, historically, uh, you, can, you can make a good argument for having Jim Morrow in this list. Uh, oh, sure. And it's, it's an important book. He's an important writer who has, interestingly enough, um, been so more or less welcomed into the mainstream that I don't think he's been recognized as much in science fiction as he should be. Yeah. Uh, he's, a, he's a very philosophical writer. He he publishes in conjunctions quite a bit. He gets a, a fair amount of mainstream attention. There was a uh, an academic journal called Paradox that devoted an entire issue to him. So he's, 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 he's a darling of academics, of some mainstream readers and so forth. But the idea of putting him in this book pleased me a lot also. I've got to say, while we're talking, literally while we're talking, I mm. have found a copy of the list. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, because, I mean, I didn't tell you this, listeners, but if you went to Amazon.com and then you went to the, the the page where you ignored the book and you looked at the preview and they list the table of contents, well, that's the 101 books. One of the curious things about the table of contents of the book, which may be on the list, is that it lists titles, but the contents does not include the authors. I know. So you must it, mu it must be presumed that these books are famous enough that you know all of the authors' names without yeah, well, being told. I didn't. Well, I, I have I will, to tell you that I think I do. Oh, really? Yeah. Let's score me quickly. 
The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, and is and is game by Scott Card. Radio Phil Free Album with by Philip K. Dick. Always Coming Home by Le Guin. This is the world the way the world ends by Morrow. I'll stop when I get one wrong. Galapagos by Vonnegut. Falling Woman by Mac, uh, by Pat Murphy. Shore of Women by Pam Sargent. Door into Ocean by Slonza Whiskey. Soldiers of Paradise by Park. Life During Wartime by Shepard. Sea and Summer by Turner. Citine by Cherry. Neverness by Zindel. Steerswoman by Rosemary Kirsten. Grass by okay, you got me there. I did not know that one. Uh, Grass by Tepper. Use of Weapons by Banks. Queen of Angels by Bear. Uh, Bujold Barayar. Uh, Cadigan Sinners. Fowler's Sarah Canary, Gwyneth Jones's White Queen, Paul McCauley's Eternal Light, Mike Swanwick's Stations of the Tide, Steve Baxter's um, uh, Tom Infinity, Richard Calder's Dead Girls, um, Stephen Gould's Jumper, Maureen uh-huh. McHugh's Chinaman and Zhang, Stan Robinson's Red Mars, v- Verna Vinci's Fire Upon the Deep, Walter John Williams's Aristoy, a book I love that people don't talk about enough, Connie Willis's Doomsday Book, um, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, Ammonite by Nicola Griffith, my second favorite Nicola Griffith book. Uh, Chimera by... Oh, I know who that's by. Why have I gone blank? I'll stop there. I've gone blank on Chimera for a minute. I know the next nine or ten... It's Mary Rosenblum. Why did I... Oh, yeah, uh, there you go. Okay, well, that, that ended the game. I, I got one wrong. Oh, well. You're doing better than I was, because I, I, I would have stopped at... Uh, the Steers The Steers Woman, yeah. But the point is, uh, and, and there are things, okay, this is where I think there are going to be debates. There are going to be people who are uh, who are going to object to the number of mainstream writers that are here. The fact that Galapagos, actually Galapagos was a late Vonnegut, but it was actually Vonnegut returning to the science fiction form in many mm-hmm. ways. Yep. Um, there are novels which I liked a lot and actually gave very good reviews to when they came out. Uh, one of those being David Zindel's Neverness, mm-hmm. uh, which seems not to have had the impact that it looked like it was going to have. Um, most of them, I think, uh, I think you could make a case for. Uh, I'm not going to. I love the fact they have Mike Bishop's brittle innings. They have Greg Egan's Permutation City. Mm-hmm. Um, there are again, looking at some of the mainstream titles, uh, Richard Powers' Galatea 2.2. Yep, sure. But there are some later on that uh, are just brand new to me, and I don't object to that at all. Um, I'm trying to find the one I'm thinking of. Um, My Dirty Little Book of Stolen Time. I don't think I know that book. Oh, hang on. My Dirty Little Book. Was that one of those ones that was published like a little, like three or four stories, or was it a novel? Um, I'm not really sure. This is a writer named Liz Jensen. I don't know it. No, okay. And No, I think it's... Uh... And see, there's some books there that I just don't think belong there, but that may just be my prejudice. Well, my, my argument I'm, I'm not is... entirely sure what Temeraire is doing on a book of a list of the top 100 science fiction novels of, all, of the last 35 years. Well, I'm not entirely sure reaction... why it's, well, it is a science fiction yeah, novel. My first reaction to that was that it's pretty clearly a science fiction list until you get to Temeraire. Um, and outside of the fact that some technology... Is, well, no, there really isn't any technology worked out in that. Um, so, yeah, The Time Traveler's Life... Isn't, it, it's time travel, but you know there are two kinds of, of time travel stories. There are those that pretend to be science fiction and those that don't pretend to be science mm-hmm. fiction. Time traveler's, time traveler's Wife belongs with Octavia Butler's Kindred as novels that use time travel. We're going we're gonna to put our character loose in time. 
We're not going to explain it. We're not going to have any technology about it. It's just going to happen because that's a story we want to tell. Mm-hmm. And Nipnegger uses that device, so it's effectively a fantasy story. Um, there are things that I'm, I'm there, there are all kinds of things I'm delighted to see on here, and things I would have put on. But unless you know, unless you and I or anybody else would go through the last 25 years and make a similar list, that's the only way I could come up with, or I radically disagree with them, or I radically agree with them. Yeah, I think I'd certainly have to study it more closely and uh, you know, ask a few questions of it. And there's a few books which are, I mean, I don't know. I look back at them, I think they were pretty good, but they weren't that brilliant, so I'm sort of a little surprised. But I guess that's a personal judgment call, and if I want to argue it, I have to either start writing lengthy essays to the New York Review of Science Fiction or compile my own book. But here's the thing. They're talking about a 25-year period and 101 books, which which on average means a little over four books per year. Uh, and if you were asked to choose four books per year for each of the 25 years, you'd be you'd be making some eccentric selections, I would hope. I, I don't know. I would have to go back and, as I'm sure they have, because they're both very diligent about this sort of thing, mm-hmm. and actually familiarize myself more with the years in question so that I could really make an informed decision. I mean, to sit here... On, off the top of our heads, I'm like, I can, I can snark about a few things. I can celebrate some things. There's some mm-hmm. books there which I think I'm just delighted to see there. Uh, Justina Robson's Natural History is a great book. And yeah. I'm surprised that it hasn't had more discussion. I mean, she did the, uh, you know, the books for Pyre, you know, Keeping It Real in its sequels, which are, are fun books. But Natural History is like a major book. Yeah. Um, I'm delighted to see River of Gods there. Very delighted to see Air or Have Not Here by Jeff Ryman on the book. I think it absolutely, absolutely totally belongs on it. Um, and, you know, and there are others without going through. But um, sometimes you do. You look and you go, really? That made your list? Huh. Huh. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, there are things I'm delighted to see. One of the, the, the things that are, in some ways, you're odd as to why they choose a particular one. They've got Kathy Goonan's in War Times, but not the book to which it's a sequel. Um but I, I love the idea that they're recognizing that. I think there are a lot of books, a number of books here, not a lot, uh, that uh, I mentioned the Niffenegger book, but they've also got Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, Ishigawa's Never Let Me Go, uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, uh, things that were wild, widely complained about by science fiction readers when they came out because you know, these are incursions into our territory. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at something like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which, no, was not a terribly original mm. uh, apocalypse. It was very powerfully written and so forth. And a few years later, uh, it doesn't seem like Cormac McCarthy has decided to steal science fiction's readership. It seems like this is a one-off thing that he did. Mm. Um, and it, you could argue it fits in very well with a lot of his earlier fiction. And, you know, by and large, these mainstream writers getting recognition for it haven't done us any harm. Oh, no. Well, you can complain that they're not great science fiction, but are they bad books? I don't know if I'd say that. Well, I, I think, and I suspect you may agree with me, I don't know. Um, one of the things that I, that I would always suggest in this is that the essence of a book like the 101 Best Novels and the essence of the argument against the Cormac McCarthy book is the essence of the discussion we're having through this podcast, or at least the, 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 not the essence of the discussion, but the process. It's people just finding something to talk about 
in terms of the field. And so along comes the road, and it gets a lot of profile, and people like to talk about it as science fiction, and honestly, mm. it doesn't matter whether it is or not, because it's not of science fiction. Mm. Um, and no, no one's trying to steal the field, but it's kind of interesting and fun to talk about it that way. Well, I mean, we talk about this a lot, and we're not the only ones who talk about it. There are articles about it. There are other podcasts that talk about it. Is, you know, is science fiction's somewhat paranoid and somewhat cocky attitude toward the rest of the world? The other issue that came up this week, which has been blogged about and discussed about, is the New Yorker finally coming out with an issue mm -hmm. which they call the science fiction issue. Yes. And there's uh, there are a lot of okay, they're going to be they're going to be I'm predicting, and I've I've been away all day, so I have not looked at the blogs and so forth and so on. I think there are going to be a lot of knee-jerk reactions. Oh, here's the mainstream making fun of us again, or taking this uh, in, in some you know contemptuous off the hand uh, off off-handed way and i've got the issue in front of me right mm -hmm. now uh and one of the things i'm uh doing is looking at the cover mm -hmm. and, okay now it's very easy to look at this cover and say this is um a contemptuous parody of science fiction with a a spaceman suddenly appearing with an alien and a robot behind him in what appears to be a, a dimensional rip in front of a cocktail party full of New Yorker types, uh, you know, bespectacled guys with, with with sweater vests and, uh, and 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 piles of books. It's it's literally an image of pulp of a pulpish image of science fiction breaking through a kind of barrier yep. to um, to the literary community. It's actually okay. Now, is that a New Yorker artist making fun of us? It's actually a cartoon by Daniel Close, who's a very interesting graphic novelist, mm -hmm. uh, who's done a few New Yorker covers, but who's not of the New Yorker. He's not of the New York literary establishment at all. If you look at any of Close's graphic novels, he does his own thing. Um, and uh, uh, the way I read this is that it's, it's no more a parody of science fiction than it's a parody of the literary establishment with the little champagne glasses and, uh, you know, um, yeah. and, um, and, Beards and spectacles and <laughs> bookcases stuffed with literary things. Yeah. Uh, and, and my sense is that the editing of this, and I have to confess, uh, I did uh, read an interview with the fiction editor uh, of the New Yorker, Deborah, what's her name? Deborah Reisman, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, in which she said something which I thought she should have said, which is that the New Yorker has off and on published science fiction, either under that label or not for many years now, and they finally decided they should recognize it. Um, and they, they, I think, are doing this with a combination of cluelessness and sincerity that, on the one hand, has only four pieces of fiction in it, uh, one of which is by Jonathan Lethem, which is no surprise because he's no. published science yeah. in New York before, one of which is Jennifer Egan, which is her Twitter thing, everybody can read it on Twitter, um, and a story by, um, let me see, a story by Sam Lipsite mm -hmm. and a story by Juno Diaz, which yep. I found very entertaining. Yep. And Juno Diaz is somebody we know is a science fiction fan. He's been a reader since he was a kid. He knows a lot about the field. He showed up at ReaderCon a couple of years now, um, driving, as it, he showed up initially as Sam Chip Delaney's driver. Um, and he, he, I've talked to him. He knows a lot about the sure, field. He sure. loves it. He wants to write science. 
So, and his his story, I've read, it's the one I actually have read, uh, both gets his sort of, um, you know, gonzo, Dominican hipster, profane, slangy style, which is very entertaining to read, which you see in the Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, mm-hmm. combined with a science fiction plot that's sophisticated enough to not think he's inventing anything new, but he's playing with a lot of uh, plague things and that sort of thing. So it's So it's really a science fiction story. Now, the part that could be regarded as mm, patronizing is a separate section which is called sci-fi mm-hmm. and that includes if, if you've seen the table of contents in yes there are pieces in the issue okay the pieces by ray bradbury ursula Le Guin, china Mievel, margaret atrid uh, karen russell of swamplandia and and william gibson yep. those are not fiction pieces those are all memoirs of growing up with science fiction mm-hmm. they're mostly fairly short they're fairly entertaining. Uh, Le Guin's certainly takes on the issue of science fiction's lack of respectability. Um, and they're, they're very sympathetic to science fiction. I guess what's, what you could take exception to is the fact that the people we would recognize as science fiction writers are invited to contribute memoirs. And the people who are regarded as New Yorker writers, that is people who have pro- previously published in The New Yorker, are invited to contribute fiction. Mm. I don't know if that was the way it was done, but that's the way it looks like it comes out. Um, I know, for example, that uh, Ursula has published more than one story in The New Yorker, including some of her most famous stories. Yeah. Uh, Bradbury, I think, cracked The New Yorker once in the 50s um, with a story called I See You Never, mm-hmm. which is one of his mainstream uh, Mexican-American stories. And um, I don't know if Gibson's been there. I know they published one of Gene Wolfe's stories. So, yes. yeah, they've done science fiction over the years. But, but are they trying to make fun of science fiction here? I don't think so. I think they're trying to, by New Yorker standards, understand what it is that makes science fiction appeal to people like us. Um, the, there's, there's one critical essay by a, a New Yorker contributor named Lauren Miller on aliens in fiction. Which is not uninformed, but it mostly deals with uh, 19th century French fiction. Sure. Uh, uh, with, with the invention of the alien in the 19th century. But it's, it's, it's sort of interesting, but not news to us. And the other long piece is Colson Whitehead, who is, again, a mainstream New Yorkerish writer with, mm-hmm. who published his first major you know, fantasy novel really last year, which is a childhood of his love affair with B, B science fiction movies. Um, so is that... Is that overall package contemptuous of science fiction or not? I was thinking about this while you're talking, and, and let me try this idea on you, just as a, just in mm. theory. Okay, how about it's not contemptuous at all? Are the, is what it's trying to do, and, and let's look at the cover as the opening amb- mm. gambit in this, is it the New Yorker commenting on the perceived response to science fiction by the New Yorker's own readership. Are they trying to engage with their own readers on this issue? And that's why they have framed it in that kind of mock recoily kind of way, whilst quite carefully picking a shadow and flavor of science fiction to put inside its pages that New Yorker readers are likely to respond to positively. Um, I think it's that's an interesting, uh, interesting question. It's, um, I mean, I, again, I go back to the cover, which I think is 
as much a parody of New Yorker readers as it is of science fiction. Mm. It's like each world looking at the stereotype of the other world. Yeah. And the fact that Daniel Close did this, I think it's important because this is not, like I say, he's done New Yorker covers, but he is very much an individual, interesting graphic novelist. And it's interesting to compare this issue and this cover with the famous Conjunctions 56 issue that Peter Straub edited with, with Brad Morrow, mm -hmm. which had a cover by Gay and Wilson, which was also a very parodic kind of typical Gay and Wilson cover with all kinds of creatures and things in it, but you know, that made allusions to uh, literary and artistic culture and pulp culture at the same time. And then the contents of that magazine, which included a number of important science fiction and fantasy writers, from John Crowley to Liz Hand to China to... Uh, there's even a Gene Wolfe piece in there. Uh, but with a sense of these are things that conjunctions readers will put up with. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a sense of trying to broaden the readership to accept this kind of fiction. And to Bradford Morrow's credit, he's continued that ever since. It was interesting when I was looking at Jonathan Carroll's collected stories, how many of his recent stories have appeared in conjunctions. Yes. So I think to some extent this is... You can look at this as the New Yorker sort of contemptuously saying, oh, we're going to pay attention to these people. You can also see it as the New Yorker sort of publicly announcing, we're not ashamed to publish these writers. You know, yes. This yeah. is the, get used. So, so you can say that you're right. To the New Yorker readers, there could be a little bit of a message in there. Get used to this because we no longer consider this as stuff that we're going to ignore. I think it's an element. And, and remember, this is, what, three issues of the New Yorker or what? five issues or something after they published a Michael Chabon story about comic book writers. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they're, they're shy of it. So Yeah. And they, they did a, um, they did, uh, what's it? Leatham story, super goat man a few years ago. Yeah. They, it's true. They have a long history of publishing fantastic fiction. And again, I keep saying this. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, crusty, but I, I did an article. Actually, my, our mutual friend, Amelia Beamer and I did an article tracing when the New Yorker went into its classic New Yorker domestic realism phase in the 1950s, mostly. And it went through a period of 20 years where they wanted nothing to do with anything fantastic. This is after they had been published, publishing stories like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery or mm -hmm. John, yeah. I don't know if they published John Cheever's The Enormous Radio, but I think, they, they're, you know, in the 40s and early 50s, there was a lot of fantastic fiction in the New Yorker. Yes. And then, and then two people came along I'm, I'm not going to make this into a lecture, so I'm about to be... I'm almost at the end of the paragraph. J.D. <laughs> Salinger came along with a story called A Perfect Day for a Banana Fish, and everybody, everybody wanted to write these moment of revelation stories, and then Raymond Carver came along with minimalist fiction. But in the meanwhile, they'd been, been publishing Donald Barthelme stories, and Barthelme has had a lot of influence on science fiction and, and fantasy writers. They were publishing stories... They published a bunch of stories by Stanislaus Lem, they published Le Guin stories. They published one or two Gene Wolfe stories. They did Lethem. They did Chabon. So it's in, in, in the last 20 or so years, yeah, they've been doing this. They've been doing it in a New Yorkerish kind of way. And they finally came out of the closet and said, yeah, we've been doing this. <laughs> Which is a good thing. You know. it's, 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 it's not a bad thing. I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, there's a question I have not read. I don't know who Sam Lipside is. I've not read his story, which is called The Republic of Empathy. Um, there's another interesting piece, which it seems to me the most emblematic piece in the issue, maybe an old essay, uh, which they unearthed by Anthony Burgess on the writing of the Clockwork Orange, mm -hmm. uh, 
They never published during his lifetime. I don't know if it's ever been published before at all. But Burgess, you know, back in the 60s, was a defender of science fiction. He was a friend of Kingsley Amos to the extent that any two literary people in England were friends back then when they were all enemies. <laughs> um, but by and large, he, he, he knew his way around science fiction a bit. And he was one of the you know, early English uh, avatars of this borderland between science fiction and fantasy. Burgess, Kingsley Amos, uh, a few other people, and 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 today that's uh, you know, today that's more or less familiar. I mean, Brian Aldiss became one of the few science fiction writers to make it into mainstream respectability, you know, to earn an OBE, for example. Um, and now you've got Ian Banks, who lives comfortably in both worlds. Um, so so Burgess is kind of a, an emblem of that writer who was both a very literary writer and a science fiction writer at the same time. Yeah. Uh, no, for sure. and, and so yeah, having him here, I mean, is you know, does the reason I the reason I asked it is, does a Clockwork Orange belong to the history of science fiction, or is it one of those oddball sports uh, where a mainstream writer decided to write a dystopia? Well, maybe the oddball sports belong to science fiction as well, and we just need to embrace them, even exactly. when they don't embrace us. That, that's my point about a, a story like uh, Cormac McCarthy's sure. The Road. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't invent. No, there's, there's nothing terrible new about that. Terrible no, no. new about that. Does he do it well? I think he does. I think it's a really disturbing book. Uh, is it more disturbing than a half dozen other science fiction post-nuclear apocalypses? Probably not. But uh, but he writes really well, and he gets his effects across, right? So mm-hmm. so my, my I come down on the side of thinking the New Yorker is not uh, using this issue as a way of wadding science fiction up and throwing it away and saying, okay, no. we've taken care of you guys. I think what they're doing is acknowledging that science fiction produces fiction which is worthy of the New Yorker, but maybe not always familiar to New Yorker readers. Fair enough. I have to say one thing I consider interesting is that there, you know, there really is no consensus about this stuff as well. I mean, we're talking about how people outside the field encounter, experience, consider science fiction – and how a major mm-hmm. venue like the New Yorker uh, deals with that and, 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 and talk, discusses, I guess, its own reaction to it, yeah? Uh, and yet, I mean, yeah, I'm going off to a convention next week, or in fact, I'm going tomorrow morning. I'm, I will be on a plane within 18 hours of talking to you. Um, and on two of the panels that I've been asked to, you know, to, to be part of, we're just, the basic topic is, where has science fiction gone? Oh, really? yeah, one is uh, basically space opera was the thing of the late 90s, early 2000s. It's disappeared, according to the panel discussion item. And another, is really? nobody, another one is nobody writes science fiction in Australia, basically. And, hmm. and, and I'm bemused as heck by both of these panels. I mean, looking forward to being on them, but bemused as heck because, you know, I mean, I, I, my copy of 2312 arrived in the mail literally yesterday, Gary. And I'm looking at my copy of the of In the Mouth of the Whale and Blue Remembered Earth, and I got a pretty good idea where the science fiction went, Gary. And it's right there. <laughs> it didn't it go anywhere. It didn't it's, go anywhere. It, it, I think, and not only that, but when you've got somebody like Stan Robinson, for example, who said on this podcast, if I'm not misquoting him, that he really wanted to write a big solar system epic. He wanted to go back to writing the hard science fiction. Yes. That he had done earlier in his career, he wanted to celebrate that kind of science fiction, 
Yes, and I, I and remember very clearly it, him saying when he was even writing it, I I had a conversation with him during the mm -hmm. writing of the book. He was like, this book is going to be my big return to science fiction. And I have to say, yeah. having you know, read the book, uh, it, it is. I mean, if, if a book that opens with a city trundling across the surface of Mercury doesn't make it as a science fiction novel, I have no idea on Earth what does. It's it, and the funny thing is it's uh, well we talked about this and I, I well, actually my review of this is online isn't it I think it is yes um, sorry sorry I'm, I'm repeating what I said there that he is from a point of view of a plot there's it's, 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 there's a thin plot he's holding this on he's but but that's not what you read the book for the book is for you know okay we're we're basically windsurfing the the rings of Saturn I mean we're, we're you're right we're crawling across the surface of Mercury we're we're looking at uh, the, the most, uh, the, the great thing he has in terms of sort of current ecological concerns is the one planet that you can't terraform is Earth, yeah. which he basically crashed. But basically, it's, it's this grand tour of the solar system. It, it fits in with what I think is one of the more interesting trends in science fiction, and so does Blue Remembered Earth, in the last 10 years, which is just, let's look at the solar system again. Um, there's the, you know, this is what I see hard science fiction doing, Paul McCauley. You're, you know, sort of, you're, you're making a compromise somewhere between the kinds of uh, earthbound science fiction that the, the, okay here's why the way I see the argument there's a thread of argument which let's say for the sake of timing begins with mundane SF begins mm -hmm. with Jeff Wright that sort yeah. of thing let's, let's talk about dual and extends up to and including um, Neil Stevenson's hieroglyph project where it basically says Let's talk about engineering projects that young scientists can actually think about doing. So let's keep science fiction to the doable. Yep. Um, uh, well, and then there's the other big ticket Alistair Reynolds, early Alistair Reynolds, Revelation Space kind of thing, Stephen Baxter, Galactic, where let's talk about the largest structures and the biggest things we can think of. You know, Greg Bear's Eon, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. the, 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 the Zeely sequence and so forth, which, which is not doable at all this is this is stuff that talks about billions of years in the future in the past so what i see happening now is you've got this interesting compromise almost a dialectic where between the mundane sf and the galactic sf you've got a bunch of writers saying well let's do something somewhere in in the middle which is the solar system yeah very much and it, it, it and is a, we've, we've touched on it here before that and i think really it is it's what we're we're, we're expecting now that that, mm -hmm. that it's the open part. It's what's open to us. The the whole um, next handful of years. Oh, sorry. The, the, so the the whole solar system. And I I, I mean I'm I'm editing a book of, of stories right now that is literally exactly that. Stories set in a pre-starflight st uh, solar system. And I think because we don't really believe in star you know starflight as being practically right. achievable for humans physically. In fact, having looked at the science of it, we're not even entirely convinced about. Humans getting into the solar system, really, so... Right. I mean, you can still do things uh, like Greg Egan does, where you, you become information and can travel at oh, the yeah, speed of yeah. light. But apart from that, there's not any realistic extrapolation that puts us in another galaxy or in yes. another yeah. star system, even. So, the, the, and, and the other thing is, there are technologies, and the more I think about it, the more I think Stan Robinson is the master of this, um, technologies which are doable if we had time and money to do them. In other words... When he describes the um, Terminator, the crawling city that stays in front of the Terminator on, on Mercury, he pretty much explains how that has to work. When he writes the Mars trilogy, he pretty much explains what you need to do to terraform Mars. Um, now, we're not going to be able to do that, but 
in terms of the hieroglyph project, these are at least specific engineering problems that you can start thinking about. Yes. Um, and, and I think that to some extent, what this represents is a return to a kind of engineering slash utopian science fiction, which really, which, which is what Heinlein was working on in much, yeah. much of his career. Guess what, Gary? What? That brings us to that point in, in, in the event. No, we're just getting started. We're, we're just go, getting started. We're, we're going to go on for three and four hours, like, well... No, we're not. Some of the fellow podcasts <laughs> longer than we do. Let's, let's admit No, that. let's not poke fun at pod, other podcasts that we're, go I'm too long. Yeah. Right on the critic. Or uh, Galactic Suburbia. I'm not saying that at I, all. No. You said I. I would never I, name I, names. I am not going to accept responsibility for my fellow podcasters. <laughs> You're disclaiming me now. I'm disclaiming you totally. <laughs> I was going to say some other podcast. I could have been thinking about. I don't know. I could have been thinking about CNN. I could have been thinking about the Republican. No, National. you weren't. You were just going to totally just leave me to hang. Thanks a lot. Yeah, no, no, that's good. Yeah, yeah, great. Thank you very much. Well, next weekend, Gary, I'm going to be in Melbourne. And what's in Melbourne? Yeah, the Australian National Science Fiction Convention, Continuum 8. That sounds exciting because... And, and, and the awards that are given out in Melbourne are... The Ditmars. And who's up for the Ditmar? Us. And who else? Oh, some other people, I don't know. Us. You're, you're just getting really cranky in your old age. <laughs> Some of our friends are up for Ditmars. Yeah, yeah, good. Go them, but but we're up too. Okay. <laughs> hey, next you're going to ask me about the Hugos and expect me to remember anybody else who's up for one of those. There are lots of good people up for Hugos. Yeah, who cares? We're up. I was have to. I have to admit, uh, we, we we did not get a chance to admit to, to 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 talk about this much last week when I was actually at Wiscon because, well, basically all of our friends there who might have been available for the podcast at that hour had better things to do. <laughs> um, well, fair enough. So I, I so so we we did our own podcast, and I walked back to the tour party at the other hotel, and and three people came up who are who are followers of our podcast. Yeah. Um, and one of which Julia Rios, I want to give a shout out to because she has a podcast called The Outer Alliance, yes. which Excellent deals podcast. with LGBT issues in science fiction and yep. fantasy. And I told her I promise I'm going to start listening to it because she's a delightful person and sounds like they have good ideas. Yep, I remember I listened to I th I'm pretty sure it was, uh, in fact, uh, Ian and Kirsten from the writer and the critic were guests. I think it was on, on uh -huh. uh, the the Outer Alliance, and it was very very good. And I have to say, we should hire her, Gary. We should totally we should. hire her. Do you know why? She's much more professional than we are. She actually does editing and and all that kind of stuff on her podcast. How cool would that oh, be? Well, yeah, we should hire her, but then again, we should hire almost anybody. Who's, I mean, if, if, <laughs> let me be honest. If it weren't for you, I would I would be completely hopeless with this podcast. But, but yeah, I mean, professionalism is not our trademark. I mean, let's stick with our trademarks. Our trademarks are incoherence and rambling. <laughs> that does seem to be the truth. But with a little, little bit of luck, we may get to podcast next week, Gary. I hope so. If not, there will be a gap, you're warned, listeners. But uh, mm -hmm. I am hoping that we will get to podcast next week. Uh, and if we do, it's even possible we will podcast with... Well, I'm supposed to be seeing Kelly Link on the weekend, because she's Kelly a guest Link. of honor flying in. But there's all sorts of other fun people. So assuming that Skype can Skype and that all is well at the right time. I, I don't know if I see anybody getting out of bed at 7 o'clock in the morning to do the panel, Barry. But we can, we can see. We can see. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. But yeah, absolutely. We'll see. I will be available next week. Week after that, I, I will be out at the Lobus Awards, I believe, sometime in mid-June. Oh, cool. Uh, so we will be, maybe be able to do a podcast from there as well. See if I can Sounds round good. up out there. And in the meantime, I'd point out to you that as I sit here recording this with you, Gary, it is my mother's 74th birthday. So happy, happy birthday, birthday mother. Yes. <laughs> and on that I will happy not note. tell you how few years older than I am your mother is. <laughs> we, we will draw a polite and gracious, a graceful curtain over that and leave it alone. On that, that sounds serene, like a good plan. On that serene note, Gary, great talking to you as always, and I'll talk to you next week, I hope. Great travels, have a great convention, and I hope we'll talk next week. Thank you. Bye. Good night.